Saints of Bethany Baptist Church. It's an honor to open God's word with you this morning. First, it's an honor because these words in Luke 10, 38 to 42, you can turn there in your Bibles. These words are the words of God. I wonder if that's lost on you at times as you listen week after week, Sunday after sermon, Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon. These are not the words of really wise men. These are the words of the infinitely wise God, the author of life, the ruler of the nations, the one who will judge the living and the dead. This book is breathed out by God, all of it. And all of it, he says, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that you and I, may be complete, equipped for every good work. What an honor to explore words with such meaning and power together. What a privilege it is. Don't let the familiarity of these moments of this book, even of these verses that we're about to read together, don't let the familiarity rob you of the wonder of what's happening here. God is speaking. And he wants us to hear him and see him and enjoy him. It's also, however, an honor to open God's word with you, Bethany Baptist Church. My wife, Faye, and I, who many of you know, my wife, Faye, and I love this church almost as much as we love our own church. We love this church. Every year since we've been married, we've spent a couple of weeks, seven years now, it's our seventh year. We've spent a couple of weeks visiting family here in Los Angeles, and typically we've stayed with PJ and Francis, which means we've basically stayed with Bethany Baptist Church. And we always leave with our hearts refreshed in Christ, with a deeper love for the bride of Christ and for our own local church, Cities Church in Minneapolis. We leave with a greater burden for the lost souls in our neighborhood and with a renewed focus and ambition to pour our lives out for Jesus. We admire how you vigorously love one another throughout the week. We admire how persistently you pray for the lost and share the gospel. We admire how deeply you immerse yourselves in God's word together how joyfully you honor and encourage your pastors, how sacrificially you invest in future leaders of the church, many of whom go out to serve in other churches, how patiently you listen to hour-long sermons. This one's not gonna be an hour, I don't think. And then you come back at five o'clock for more that evening. In the words of 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 4, the seagulls always thank God for all of you making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know that because of what we've experienced as we've worshiped among you these last years. 
And so believe me when I say it is an honor, a gift. I have looked forward to this day for years, really, but especially for weeks once we chose a date to open God's word with you. So what word from God would I bring for a church that I love and admire so much? It really is, this choice is really inspired by all that I love about you as a church. So you have taught me these verses, even though we haven't opened them together. I want to remind us that as full and complicated and demanding as life can be, and it can be full and complicated and demanding, I wanna remind us that one thing is necessary. Just one thing. In any season of life, at any age, however many children we have and however old they are, whatever deadlines we have at work, whatever crisis come into our homes, our families, our lives, just one thing. So our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. I'll read those now. It's on page 922 in the Bibles there in the pew. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. She came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for showing us these ordinary and vulnerable moments with a woman like Martha. These anxious and troubled and distracted moments. They feel like our moments. And we get to see how you loved her in anxiety, in distraction, in frustration. Remind us now of the one necessary thing. Don't let our minds and hearts be dragged away by the cares of this world. Don't let us be consumed by everything else except the one thing that's most important. We want more of what we need most, and that's you. So help us in these minutes together by your spirit and through your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we stop to remember that God exists, that he created all that is from nothing, that he sustains everything we know, everything in this room, moment by moment with just a word from his mouth, that he governs every government on earth, that he entered into his creation taking on flesh, enduring weakness and temptation, suffering hostility to the point of death, even death on a cross, all to shower us with mercy, to cleanse us of our sin, and to secure us with an eternity with him in paradise. 
When we stop to remember all that, it is stunning, isn't it? That we ignore and neglect him like we often do. It's stunning. Isn't it amazing that God simply was before time began, and yet we sometimes struggle to find even 10 minutes for him? Isn't it perplexing, bordering even on insanity, that we sometimes prefer distracting ourselves with our phones over taking advantage of our breathtaking access to his throne of grace in Christ? Isn't it kind of unexplainable how we often live as if we don't have time to sit and enjoy God? It is stunning, amazing, and perplexing, and yet it's so familiar, isn't it? We know that time with God is the most important thing we can do in any given day. And yet we find a hundred other things to do first. Everyone who has followed Jesus knows what it's like to be distracted from following Jesus. At least everyone I know. That means we all, every one of us, can sympathize with anxious Martha. When Martha saw that Jesus had come to Bethany, she welcomed him into the home where she and her sister Mary lived. This is the first time that we meet these sisters and the only time in the book of Luke. We do have one other glimpse of them in a key moment in the Gospel of John, which I'm going to come back to later. Here in Luke 10, though, when Mary saw Jesus, verse 39, she immediately sat down at his feet and hung on his every word. But Martha, next verse, but Martha was distracted by her many tasks. It's hard to be too hard on Martha. She wasn't distract with, distracted with a few tasks, but with many tasks. And she was hosting, after all, the Messiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And she alone, apparently, was preparing the food. I assume some in the room know what that feels like. Mary realized who Jesus was, and she sat down to listen to him. Martha realized who Jesus was, and she ran to do all that she could to serve him. The serving itself was not the problem, at least not the main problem, especially given the expectations around hospitality in that day. So what was the problem? Jesus tells us it was worry. Anxiety was consuming Martha. When she complains to Jesus that, that Mary isn't helping her, tell her to give me a hand, he responds, verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Her grumbling had opened wide a window into her heart. Love wasn't inspiring her to serve. Fear was. The turmoil inside of her was driven by a misplaced fear a misplaced fear. And how often is that true of us? The fear of disappointment keeps us from praying again. The fear of failure keeps us from trying again. The fear of rejection keeps us from sharing our faith. 
The fear of being hurt keeps us from being vulnerable. The fear of shame keeps us from admitting we're wrong. The fear of missing out keeps us from giving more. And you can, I'm sure you can imagine other ones for yourself and others. Instead of being motivated by faith and love and joy, we're often motivated by worry. We're serving, maybe even serving much. Martha had many tasks, but it's not out of the overflow of our love for Jesus. We keep ourselves busy because we're worried and upset about many things. And Martha wasn't just consumed by a fear, but many fears. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. This wasn't just about food and hospitality, about getting everything on the table. Martha was distracted from Jesus because her mind was swimming in the cares of this world. We don't know what her particular cares are. They don't tell us here in these verses. But we can still relate, can't we? Perhaps all the more so now because of how much more we know about the brokenness in our cities, in our nation, in our world. Martha didn't have the LA Times. She didn't have CNN. She didn't have a telephone. Can you imagine what a wreck Martha would be if she had Facebook? No, she only knew what her neighbors told her, and it was still enough to overwhelm her. And because she wouldn't stop and listen to Jesus, she was forfeiting the one voice that could calm and strengthen and focus her heart. Fortunately for Martha and for Marshall, Jesus knows how to still the raging waves of worry inside of us. Notice first, when he, when he speaks to her, notice first that he says her name not once but twice. Martha. Martha. You can almost hear him slowing down the second time. He uses his voice like a brake to slowly quiet the turbulence in her heart. This is the kind of God we have. He does, he's not harsh or short with her. He's not dismissive about her fears. He doesn't come down hard on her here. He knows how distracted she is, how wildly her mind is racing from one worry to another. And so he gently brings her back to reality. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. The ESV says, Mary has chosen the good portion. There's a footnote at the bottom of your Bibles there. Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken away from her. So in just two short sentences, he confronts Martha's sinful anxiety, our sinful anxiety, first with necessity, then with felicity, with happiness. I'll explain that in a minute. And then lastly, with security. Necessity, felicity, security. Do you struggle with anxiety? Do the cares of this world rise up like waves, making it difficult to see and think and move forward? Let these words from Jesus lift you up above those waves. One thing is necessary, necessity. One portion is the good portion, felicity. 
one treasure can never be taken away from you. Security. So first, necessity. You are worried and upset about many things, he says, but one thing is necessary. In other words, everything that feels so pressing, so critical, so overwhelming to you in the moment, Martha, all of that is ultimately unnecessary next to hearing and knowing Jesus. What feels pressing and overwhelming for you right now? Everything that feels so pressing, so overwhelming, so critical to us in the moment is ultimately unnecessary next to hearing and knowing Jesus. He is the one necessary thing. Martha's fears, though, they screamed the opposite. What will we serve him? What will he think about the food? How will this compare with other places that he's visited? Did the neighbors notice that Jesus came to our house? Why isn't Mary helping me? And that's to say nothing of any of the other burdens that she was carrying that day. We don't know what precise anxieties were harassing Martha, but we do know that they were many and that each concern insisted it was essential and urgent. That's how anxiety works. Fears not only threaten us, but they multiply and then they compete with one another for our attention, which makes anxiety all the more disorienting. Jesus quiets that war with four words. One thing is necessary. One thing, to be still, be quiet, and listen to Jesus. Hundreds of years before Martha was born, King David had already learned this lesson. This is Psalm 27.4, which, which Pastor PJ read earlier in the service. Verse 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord. One thing, again. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. I want to see the glory of the Lord, he's saying. I want to be with him, speak with him, enjoy him. That's all I want. I want one thing. I would surrender everything else I have if that's what it costs to know him, to worship him, to cast my cares on him, to have him. And it would be a good trade. All that I have for any of him. Any of him. David said this, remember, and we just heard these verses in the context of Psalm 27. David said this, one thing I want, while evildoers assailed him, verse 2. And armies encamped against him, verse 3. And lies and threats fell like arrows around him, he says, verse 12. In other words, David had every reason to fear. He wasn't dealing with food and hospitality and the other matters of Bethany, the town of Bethany. He had real reasons to fear. And yet even then, he knew the one thing he must do, seek the Lord. He didn't put it off for calmer, safer, more peaceful days. No, in his hardest, most fearful, most distracted days, he felt all the more acutely his need for the one necessary thing. Satan will try to make everything feel more urgent than sitting down to be with Jesus. Isn't this right? You feel this? 
He will try to make everything feel more urgent than sitting down to be with Jesus. He will make work feel more important, school more important, news more important, cleaning more important, social media more important, food prep more important. He'll even make our favorite shows or sports teams feel more important than sitting down to be with Jesus. Satan specializes in preoccupation. If he can't destroy us, then he'll try and distract us first. It's how he works. He's a schemer, a deceiver, a distractor. But one thing is necessary, just one thing. And it's not the hard conversation that you're dreading or the pile of deadlines at work or some distant drama on social media, or the exam you need to pass next week, or the debt you're afraid afraid that you'll never pay off. One thing is necessary today and tomorrow and next Tuesday and every day after. It's to know, obey, and enjoy Jesus. It's to sit and be with Jesus. More than anything else, our souls need him. So first, necessity. Second, felicity, happiness. It's a word for happiness. The necessity of this one pursuit doesn't make it a miserable one. That we have to do this doesn't make it a miserable pursuit. That we have to be with Jesus doesn't mean that those moments can't also be the best moments of our day. We have to eat vegetables. We have to get our shots. We have to go to the dentist. This is not that kind of have to. This necessary is the sweetest necessary in the world. One thing is necessary, Jesus says. Mary has chosen the good portion. Again, the CSB says Mary has made the right choice. There's a footnote explaining that. That's true. It is the right choice. But I think the Greek Greek wording here wants us to see more than just right. The portion that she chose is not just correct, but good. It's like Luke 153. This is the CSB, same word here. The Lord has satisfied the hungry with good things. Same word. That's not just correct things, but beautiful things, nourishing things, pleasing things, satisfying things, better things. I think that's the kind of good that we have here. In Luke 10, Mary didn't just make the right choice. She chose what was better, what was sweeter, what was more nourishing and fulfilling to her soul. For choosing the necessary thing, Mary received the good portion. Necessary was no sacrifice for Mary in that moment. It was all gain. She was drinking from a well that would never run dry, feasting from a table overflowing with good food. She was swimming in an ocean of hope and peace and joy. Because his presence was her portion, her portion was not just right, but it was good. Her sitting and listening said what the Apostle Paul would one day say in Philippians 3, 8, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Martha, meanwhile, was drinking from another well that day. One that left her even more thirsty. 
While the fountain of living water sat in her living room, she worked feverishly to carve out cisterns for herself. This is Jeremiah 2, 13. Broken sisters, cisterns that can hold no water. That's how these anxieties oppress us. They beg and plead for our attention, but they're never satisfied. Fear breeds fear, breeds fear, breeds fear. But the good fountain, the good portion, the necessary, the one necessary thing, it breeds peace and contentment. It quenches our thirsts. It satisfies our longings and it gives our souls rest, the rest we desperately need. Necessity for Mary and for us is also felicity. It's better. It's a better, happier portion than whatever we might let distract us from Jesus. Third, security. This necessary and happy pursuit is also profoundly safe. Mary has chosen the good portion, Jesus says, and it will not be taken away from her. Not only has Mary chosen wisely, sitting at Jesus' feet to receive his words, but she's also chosen happiness, the good portion. And not just any happiness, but a full and abundant happiness that no person or circumstance could ever take from her. Is there any better word to a heart distracted by worry? See the care and compassion in, Jesus, in the way that Jesus responds to Martha. Is there any better word to a heart consumed by anxiety than to say the good that I will give you, you will never, ever lose? It's like Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those things might all come. That's why Paul lists them there. They weren't hypothetical threats for the readers in the early church. These were real things that people in the church were suffering. And Christians still experience these kinds of suffering around the world today, right now. PJ prayed for a couple of them earlier. You may experience affliction while following Jesus. You may experience distress or persecution or danger, or some severe need, but none of them can take Jesus from you. What's the worst thing you're suffering right now? The thing that hurts the most. We've had two funerals in our family in the last month, so I don't ask that question lightly. What's the worst thing? Even if the worst thing you're suffering right now got worse, even if the horrible thing you're not yet suffering comes, none of it could threaten what you have in Jesus. No suffering will be strong enough or intense enough or prolonged enough 
to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This portion, the good portion, will never be taken from you. The one necessary thing is the happiest thing, and it's the only thing that will never be taken from us. It's the safest thing. He is the safest thing. Okay, so we see the problem in Martha, but do we see it here today in ourselves, in me? I want to fast forward a couple thousand years to a little town called Minneapolis. The year is 2021, the month September, the family is my own. I chose these verses because I wanted to remind Bethany Baptist Church that there's always one necessary thing in life, to know, follow, and enjoy Jesus Christ. But I also chose these verses because they have felt intensely personal and relevant for us over the last couple of months. Several weeks ago, after just a week in kindergarten, my oldest son is five, our son came down with a respiratory illness, it wasn't COVID, praise the Lord. Whatever it was, though, it knocked him out of, out of class for a week and a half. And then our baby girl got what he had. We have, a, we have two. So our second is one. Her name's Liberty. She's never really slept well. But now we're all the more sensitive because she's sick. Is she okay? Should I check on her? Can she still breathe? When she doesn't sleep, no one in our house sleeps well. And then my wife and I got it. She worse than me. All of this while we're preparing to spend two long, long, long-awaited weeks in sunny Southern California with our friends and family here. Will we be healthy enough to fly? Will we bring whatever we had to the fa- will we bring whatever we had to the family here? When do we go get a COVID test? Do we need to get another test? When can our son go back to school? And if we send him back, will he just get sick again? Meanwhile, we're supposed to have friends visit from out of town and stay with us before we left. Should they still come? Should we postpone? Will it work for them to reschedule? And what about work? Can I really just take two weeks off right now? Will everything get done? Am I just dumping a bunch of extra work on my team? Am I going to come back swamped before the holidays? All of this, of course, just piles pressure onto marriage. More decisions More decisions on less sleep usually means what? More disagreement, more misunderstanding, more conflict. Will we get everything done? When are we going to do that? What if this happens? What if that happens? How are we going to pay for that? Who's going to take care of that? In the midst of all that, Marshall. Marshall, Jesus says. I don't know what Martha was so worried about but I do know something of what Martha felt like. I know what it's like to be anxious and troubled about many things. Marshall, Marshall, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Choose the good portion and it will never be taken away from you. We've all had days or weeks or months, haven't we, when sitting with Jesus felt like a luxury that we just didn't have. I wish I had time to sit and read my Bible and pray. I can't wait until life settles down and I, have, I can have my quiet time back. No, Jesus says in whatever situation we're in, whatever situation 
we're in. One thing is necessary. One portion is good. One treasure is secure. If we don't have time for Jesus, if I don't have time for Jesus, I'm misjudging my needs and I'm misusing my time. There is always, always time to sit with God. These sisters, Martha and Mary, though, they aren't done teaching us about the things that keep us from Jesus. We have one more crucial, crucial scene with them, this time in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. I'll, I'll read the verses. We can't spend as long here as I'd like to, but I think this scene looks at the same tension I've been talking about, but from another angle. And I was especially eager to draw attention to this story briefly because the roles in this case are somewhat re reversed from Mary and Martha. In the story we just read, Mary rushed to listen to Jesus while Martha was too anxious and distracted to come. In this story, it's Martha that runs to Jesus while Mary stays away. So their brother Lazarus, John 11, their brother Lazarus had been very sick, near to death. And so the sisters, knowing that Jesus could heal Lazarus, they sent for Jesus, saying, Lord, the one you love is sick. You can feel that there's been a relationship built here between Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Lord, the one you love is sick, verse 3. And then verses five to six. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. These are two of the strangest and most profound verses in all the Bible about love. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he stayed two days longer. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he didn't rush to heal him. Jesus loved Lazarus, so he let the one that he loved die. And that's what happened. Had Jesus come right away, Lazarus would not have died, but Jesus waited, and Lazarus died and was buried before Jesus arrived. When Jesus did arrive, verse 17, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Imagine how long those days must have felt for Martha and Mary, missing their brother and wondering why Jesus hadn't come sooner. Why didn't he come? Verse 20. Now pay attention to how these two sisters respond. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha rushed to meet him. Mary stayed back, seated in the house. See how the roles are reversed? So what kept Mary from going? It doesn't seem to be the anxiety that was, had troubled Martha back in the house. No, it seems like Mary was in the grip of heartache, of grief, possibly even of anger at Jesus. Martha's faith, however, held strong in this moment, even four days after watching her brother die. She had a clarity and a hope that Mary doesn't seem to have. Verses 21 and 22, this is where she talks to Jesus. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, 
even now, four days later, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Even now. Do you have an even now faith in Jesus? Even now, after my brother has laid in that cave, no breath, no heartbeat, no sign of life at all, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he'll give it to you. And for us, even now, after a virus has robbed us of life and family and work and church as we knew it, we know that whatever you ask from God, Jesus, he will give it to you. Even now, when our plans for the fall have been upended and scrambled, we know that whatever you ask from God, he'll give it to you. Even now, when relationships are strained and conversations boil over and wounds are felt, fresh wounds or old wounds, even now, Jesus, we know that whatever you ask from God, he'll give it to you. I so admire Martha in this moment. Her life has been swallowed in darkness. Her brother, her brother, the boy she'd grown up with, the man that she and her sister now lived with, the Lazarus that she had loved for so long, gone. And she still trusted Jesus. She still ran to Jesus. She still pled with Jesus. She still loved and hoped in Jesus, even now. But Mary, Mary remained seated in the house. The same Mary that had sat at his feet while Martha ran around anxious, now she couldn't even go to face Jesus at least at first. But Martha went back and called her sister, Mary, verses 28 and 29, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now watch how Mary speaks to Jesus, verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died, period. Both women say essentially the same thing. If you had come, Lazarus would not have died. But one stops there. The other presses through her grief with hope. Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Mary, it seems, was blinded and paralyzed by her grief. Martha held fast to her hope in Jesus. She kept listening, kept praying, kept watching, kept waiting, kept trusting, even after four days. So in Luke 10, Martha teaches us that the cares of this world can keep us from the one necessary thing. In John 11, Mary teaches us that disappointment and grief can do the same thing. Satan distracted Martha and nurtured her anxieties. But with Mary, 
he pressed on her pain and stoked her bitterness, stoked the bitterness and the despair in her. Satan knew how to draw each of them away from Jesus. So how does he draw you away from Jesus? How does he attack you with temptation? How does he most consistently keep you from sitting down to be with Jesus? Both sisters, however, also give us a positive lesson. It's part of what I love about these two stories, these two scenes in their life. While Martha is too distracted and anxious to sit down and listen to Jesus, Mary gives us hope that we can hold the cares of this world at bay long enough to sit and hear from Jesus. She reminds us that we always have time to sit with God. And while Mary is too upset to come to Jesus after her brother died, Mary gives us hope that we can press through any disappointment, any grief, any loss, and still come to Jesus. And what does Jesus do next in John 11? You know if you know the story. Four days after Lazarus had been laid in the tomb, he asked them to remove the stone. And then he prays. And then he says, verse 43, Lazarus. Notice he only has to say his name once. Lazarus, come out. Next verse, the dead man came out. Dead men don't come out. Dead men don't do anything. But Lazarus did. The man who had died, who was dead, really dead, he breathed and walked and talked again. I imagine he gave his sisters the biggest, longest, warmest hugs they had ever had. It's a stunning glimpse, isn't it, isn't it of who Jesus really is? This is the God waiting for us in his word, in prayer, in fellowship with one another in the church. This is the one asking us to come sit at his feet, the one who raises the dead. And if you're here and you've never come to Jesus before, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come, to finally come and sit with Jesus and listen to Jesus and obey Jesus and enjoy Jesus. The one necessary thing isn't just the one necessary thing for Christians or for the people in this room. The one necessary thing is the one necessary thing for everyone. Everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in the nation, everyone in the world, the one necessary thing is always the one necessary thing that you know and obey and enjoy Jesus. You were made for Jesus, but you were also born into sin. All of us have failed to honor God, to obey God, to love God as we're supposed to. That's what sin is. It's everything in us that rejects God, that refuses the one necessary thing. And the punishment for that sin is death. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve to sit and enjoy the king of the universe. We don't deserve it because of our sin. We deserve to be crushed by him for how we've treated him. 
But God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, to be crushed in our place on the cross. He took our sin and paid our debt so that those like me who refused him, who disobeyed him, who dishonored him, might come and sit with him at his table forever. And not just now, but in eternity when the wedding supper of the lamb comes. If you believe in him and repent of your sin, you will be forgiven and he will welcome you. Just like he welcomed Martha, just like he welcomed Mary, just like he welcomed me, he will welcome you. So believe and repent of your sin. Not long after Lazarus walked out of his grave, Jesus went to the cross and then was laid in a grave of his own. Because he wanted us to have and enjoy the one necessary thing in life, relationship with him, fellowship with him, eternity with him, he sacrificed everything. He endured the hostility, the injustice, the humiliation, the torture, even the cross, all that we might have an opportunity to do the necessary thing, the happiest thing, the safest thing. He lost it all so that we might have the good portion. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So that God might be your one thing, your portion, your treasure, your refuge. Have the cares of this world distracted you from sitting at the feet of Jesus? Have your fears left you feeling restless or insecure or unstable? The God of the universe is still speaking right now in his word. Hear his voice calling your name today. Chris. Chris. Alyssa. Alyssa. Ross, Ross, Ruby, Ruby. He's calling you to come and enjoy the one necessary thing, the one satisfying thing, the one safe thing. You have time to sit with God. Let me pray. Jesus, just like you saw the heart of anxious Martha, you alone, you know the storms rising in each of our hearts. You know the particular anxieties and distractions and sins keeping us, each of us, from deeper fellowship with you. And just like you quieted the winds and calmed the raging seas with a word from your mouth, you can quiet the storms in us. Right now, where we are, whatever burdens we're bearing, I pray that each of us would see the ways that Satan keeps us from sitting with you and that you would strengthen us to defy him, to be still and know that you are God and to prioritize, prioritize and fight for the one necessary thing. For we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.